1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind on this day before Thanksgiving. I'm Bill Nygut, uh, and thank you all so much for being with us today. You know, um, in virtually every major poll in the run-up to the November 8th general election, we saw that people uh, said that threats to our democracy was one of the top issues on which they were thinking about how they would cast their ballots. And as recently as just uh, yesterday, or um, actually I guess it was the day before, uh, a a runoff poll uh, conducted uh, by 4AARP looking at the Walker-Warnock race said the same thing. Threats to democracy were very high on the priorities that people were concerned about as they head to the polls for the runoff election. And so we're going to talk about that today, and in a moment I'm going to introduce the CEO of the Carter Center, Paige Alexander, because the Carter Center has been monitoring elections and working to protect democracies around the world. for literally almost five decades and now they're working here in the United States as well so in a moment I want to bring Paige in but I first want to say hello to my Wednesday partner on the show AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, the hardest working man in show business these days Bluestein, you are everywhere all the time in this runoff election just as you were throughout the general election cycle
2: First some Thanksgiving break I can't wait for December 6th and we're, we've, we've, we've put this uh, runoff behind us and we have a very busy 2023 to look forward to. So, uh, um, But I'm looking forward to some downtime uh, tomorrow for Thanksgiving.
1: Well, Greg, um, I do want to say very quickly that um, as I think of the things that I'm thankful for, one of them is that you have been a partner of this show basically from the very start and having you on has been a Genuine joy for me. So I'm very thankful for your participation on Political Rewind, Greg.
2: And I'm thankful that you included me in your show from the get-go. Back when it was an afternoon program and it was just a a couple times a
1: week. That's right.
2: The daily powerhouse
1: of it now. Let's uh, bring in Paige Alexandra Paige is the uh, uh, Carter Center's CEO. We're awfully glad to have you here, Paige. Thanks for joining us today.
0: it's great to be with you. Thanks, Bill. Good to
1: see both you and Greg. Talk to you today. I want to uh, give you a chance in just a moment to start talking about the present-day work of the Carter Center in terms of election uh, monitoring. Um, But if you don't mind, I want to go back in history uh, just for a moment because I think it's fascinating. It was in 1989 that former President Jimmy Carter, and I think Rosalind Carter was with him, went to Panama, uh, where there were elections taking place in May of that year. The military strongman, Manuel Noriega, had a candidate. He was running for president. But there was also an anti-Noriega candidate named Guillermo Endara, who was running in that election. So the Carters were there to, uh, to oversee what was happening in that race. And of course, very quickly after the polls were closed, uh, the Noriega regime uh, put out uh, numbers that suggested <laughs> that their candidate won overwhelmingly when, in fact, it was clear and Dara, the anti-Noriega candidate, had won the race. Uh, President Carter was prepared to object. He wanted to uh, talk to uh, the news media about what had really happened. And he was held under house arrest for a short period of time so that he could not talk to the media. And when he finally got the chance, he held a news conference and he called on um, countries around the world to join him in protesting the stolen election. And he said to Noriega, are you an honest person or are you a thief? And that's how it all started, Paige. And the Carter Center has monitored elections in over 100 countries ever since, right?
0: Right. And, and, you know, President Carter was not a shrinking violet. I uh, didn't have to worry about him not speaking truth to power. And it also shows how important the media is in many respects. And so I, that was sort of the kickoff to what has been over 110 election observation missions for us in 39 countries. And now here we are looking at our own backyard.
1: So um, let's talk about that. Uh, And Greg, obviously, I want you to jump in at any point during our conversation. Um, You uh, were the co-author of a piece that was posted on the CNN website recently. And um, among the many things that you said is this. Many politicians these days seem to think they have to play dirty to win, that truth is optional and that they don't have to accept the results if they lose. We have news for them. American voters are fed up with scorched-earth campaigning and want their leaders to act like adults. They want candidates to follow the rules of decency and civility. They want national healing and reconciliation. And to that end, you joined a number of other organizations to, uh, in fact, create what you call candidate principles for trusted elections going into this cycle. Talk about that a little
0: Yeah, well, you know, in 2020, the Carter Center's democracy programs wanted to support U.S. elections because we saw where this was going. And we wanted to provide objective information about the election process and promoting good practices and transparency and, you know, partner with grassroots organizations to disseminate these messages around peaceful electoral transition. So by 2022, we had learned some lessons from 2020, and it became a whole of Carter Center approach and what we saw as an existential threat to democracy and the underlying process of election integrity. So because we've seen this around the world, we wanted to do it in our own backyard. And one of the, uh, one of the things that we do when we do this in other countries are put together candidate principles. And these we thought, how can we do this in the U.S.? We wanted it to be a cross-partisan pilot project that we plan to expand between now and 2024. And so having a conversation with Lise Whitney from the Ford Presidential Center, uh, we got this idea that if we wrote something together, we could, again, show the bipartisan nature of sort of basic integrity of the election. And so the candidate principles uh, is really set to encourage... Candidates, political parties, and voters to uphold four, five core doctrines of democratic elections. That's integrity, nonviolence, security, oversight, and the peaceful transfer of power. So we've had 80 organizations sign, 130 candidates, uh, and including our own Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, Brad Rasenberger, B. Wynn, and Raphael Warnock, and the intent is really because that's what Americans want to see now. I think the election deniers have consistently, you know, consistently underperformed in this election. It's because the American public really wants to hold people accountable uh, to the fair democratic process that elections are to be.
1: You know, Greg, one of the things that are, yeah go, no, you go ahead, Greg.
2: I was going to say, Paige, I'm curious how hard it was to get some of these candidates to sign— that pledge because you're in the middle, you, they signed it in the middle of a very fraught election in some cases, uh, lots of controversies going back and forth. Uh, here in Georgia, of course, Stacey Abrams is continuing uh, to criticize Georgia's electoral policies. Brian Kemp was continuing to defend them. Both of them signed this pledge. Was it hard to get politicians on opposite sides of so many issues to come together on this core principle?
0: Well, we were down to five principles, to be honest. We started with 12. Uh, so the reality was that we did look at this in 2020. And when I talked to the campaigns in 2020, especially right before the runoff then, uh, they all said they had commercials in the can. They, they they looked at the principles and said, not sure we can sign this and be held accountable to what you're saying. So we started much earlier this time. And we got immediate sign-on from – uh, from Governor Kemp, from Stacey Abrams, as I said, from you know, from, from Wynn, everyone was willing to lean into this because these are core principles that I think people saw the trajectory of what the American public wanted.
1: Um, it, it strikes me, uh, Paige, that um, you, you've laid out the the five principles um, uh, in, your, in the document uh, that was put out by your organization and a number of others. Honest process, cooperate with election officials, adhere to rules and regulations, don't propagate falsehoods, civil campaigning, encourage a peaceful election atmosphere. Uh, I'm not sure how close people come uh, to that one, but I understand it's an important goal. Secure voting, fair oversight, trusted outcomes, and it's the trusted outcomes that I really want to focus on for just a minute. Over and over again, candidates here in Georgia were asked by people like Greg Bluestein, and in states across the country, candidates were asked, will you accept the outcome of the election if you lose? And um, there, there was not unanimous agreement by candidates in many parts of the country that they would. And that still remains an issue, although I have to say, we'll talk in a minute about what happened in Georgia. Here, at least, we didn't see to the best of my knowledge, any examples of that, certainly not in a dramatic fashion. Paige?
0: Yeah, so we didn't, and because we at the Carter Center were asked to observe in Fulton County, you know, I did early observation, I did election day observation, I did the risk-limiting audit, and I sat with a number of other observers from both political parties, and uh, it was Those conversations were very interesting to me because they didn't know exactly what they were looking for. And to, you know, to spend hours at a precinct watching the elections, it's like watching paint dry. It's not very exciting. But the things that they were learning is exactly the concept of, you know, this is the process and this is the integrity of the election. So I think from the perspective of you know any sort of questions about little men in the machine, you know those have been slowly stripped away over the past couple of years. But it is great to see partisan observers watching the polls and learning about the process, because I think that's part of it. And it's part of what we were saying in 2020. It's education. You're not going to know. We're Americans. We expect to know these things the day they happen. The election's over. You want to know the election results an hour later. And just starting to pull people back from that, and explaining the process—that's just all part of an educational process. So,
1: Greg, it strikes me that one of the most important examples of accepting the results of an election uh, were uh, uh, surrounded. Um, Stacey Abrams. We know that in 2018, she acknowledged that um, Brian Kemp was going to be governor in a, in a now famous speech, but she would not concede the election. She referred to the fact that she felt that uh, the election, that suppression of votes and other things, had made him governor. Obviously, that was an issue that came up. The Kemp campaign used against her over and over, and of course, it was also easy uh, to do some what aboutism to say that uh, was Stacey Abrams really much different than uh, Donald Trump. This time... She absolutely and graceful, gracefully accepted defeat and conceded the race. Yes? Yes.
2: Uh, n- not only did she concede the race, but she actually called Governor Kemp to concede the race before any of the networks had called the race. Mm-hmm. So she called shortly before 11 p.m. on election night, and uh, the networks didn't call it until after the news broke that she. Had conceded the race, so this was also, you know, this was a this was a through point, a through line throughout the election, which was, you know, folks like me would ask questions about this, and she would say, and so would camp would always say they would accept the role, acknowledge and accept the role, results of the election, no matter what they showed, and uh, you know, a very different scenario than we saw in 2020 with Donald Trump and his allies. And frankly, a different scenario we saw in 2018, although you mentioned the whataboutism. And of course, the biggest difference between Stacey Abrams and and Donald Trump was she didn't actively try to overturn the election results and sway election officials to toss out valid ballots uh, that went to her opponent. And and that's just one of many differences between the two.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before you start sending me angry emails or tweet at me, I'm not suggesting that the comparison is valid. I'm saying that Republicans used it against uh, Stacey Abrams during the election. But as Greg points out, she was not uh, as active in person. She wasn't active at all in trying to overturn the results of the election. Um, I I think I'm correct, Paige that the Carter Center is still engaged in Arizona right now, which is been, has been a hotbed of election denialism uh, ever since the 2020 race. Uh, Carrie Lake continues to refi- uh, uh, refuse to concede that she lost the governor's race. But you're um, involved in one of the counties in Arizona where there's been real difficulty, one of the biggest counties where there's been real difficulty in counting the ballots accurately, Yes.
0: Well uh, well, Maricopa is the largest county, and they had some uh, some problems with their machines, but right now we're really focused on looking at Arizona and uh, Cochise and Mojave counties, which are yes. you know they're, they're stepping back now and saying they're going to postpone certification on the basis of public complaints. Uh, but these public complaints have already been heard and dismissed multiple times in court. We've gone through this in Fulton County. People have the right to come and publicly, you know, state what their concerns are, and it gets looked into. So, you know, we're watching this space. But, again, I think that, you know, I think that the systems are in place at this point, and I think people are demanding the certification. And so, well, we're keeping an eye on it. We're worried about it, but we also uh, we also know that, that you know, we're happy in our backyard that it's going to be better, but we're we are watching Arizona.
1: Just right. to be specific about it, the Cochise County Board of Supervisors has delayed certification of of some forty seven thousand votes. So it's a lot of votes um, because um, and the Carter Center's concern has been if you don't get those votes uh, 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 certified, yeah. that, that's some forty seven thousand people whose votes are at this point not officially counted in in the totals. Greg, um, it's interesting that we haven't seen the kind of national news, at least to my knowledge, around Carrie Lake's ongoing refusal to accept the results, that she lost the governor's race. She, of course, one of Trump's closest allies, and uh, Trump actually... uh, uh, said to uh, one of the people running on that ticket, be more like Carrie Lake and you'll win your election. She is uh, objecting to the results, but it hasn't been a big national story to the best of my knowledge, which I suppose has, may be a good sign.
2: Yeah, I take it as a good sign. I mean, look, uh, there's 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 media fatigue with all these false claims too, and amplifying them doesn't do any good sometimes, right? Or, or pretty much every sign. <laughs> So, So amplifying the fact that, Miss Lake continues to object to the election results that are free and fair, that have been certified in some cases, and that that have been vetted. All that uh, doesn't do any good. You know, it's still a story in Arizona, and when she, you know, whatever whatever legal action she might take will be a, you know, a local story there. But nationally, and I, and then probably locally too, folks just want to move on and and get ready for the uh, the incoming governor's new term.
1: Paige, another uh, initiative that you launched for this election, uh, and correct me if I don't get the words in the right order, the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network. We've talked about it quite a bit on Political Rewind because one of the leaders of that initiative is Leo Smith, the Republican political consultant who has been a frequent panelist on this show. The other is Rashad Ritchie, who is a Democrat and a media personality, Um, and, and in that effort, you were trying to bring together people in various communities around the state uh, to uh, uphold and, uh, I think, reinforce these principles of free and fair elections. Tell us a little about what that was all about and how you feel it worked leading up to uh, November 8th.
0: Sure. Well, the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network was developed in response to gaps we saw that contributed to violence around the 2020 election. So in 2020, there was very little that was organized, cross-partisan uh, efforts to address the election-related disinformation that led to the Capitol riot. So we decided to bring together Republicans and Democrats to advocate for the minimum norms that you'll find Again, in our candidate principles, and that candidates should accept the results when they lose and refrain from spreading disinformation because it undermines the whole confidence of the election. And obviously, they shouldn't incite violence. So, we estimated here in Georgia, we reached at least 3 million people with our pro democracy, anti violence messaging in the run up to the midterms. And our Republican and Democratic influencers, which they were, really pushed these messages out. To their own constituencies, and private and public meetings, and media, and on social media channels. So it's been heartening to watch Republicans and Democrats getting along and working together for the good of democracy in the country. And you know, there's a reason they say all politics are local. And so to be able to do this with the local leads like Leo and Rashad have been very important, and Martha Zoller and others. I think that's really an important part of what we we did, and that's what made it effective.
1: So. Given all of that, um, we were all holding our breaths, I think it's safe to say, worried about what possible disruptions could take place at polling places here in Georgia, across the country. Were election deniers and conspiracy theorists going to uh, do anything to go into polling places, challenge voters in the polling place in ways that uh, would uh, create real uh, problems? Uh, To the best of my knowledge, None of that happened in Georgia, and I know of very few instances across the country where we had that. This turned out to be a remarkably uh, calm and and orderly election. Yes,
0: absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's it, that's exactly what we saw, and it's what we had feared. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to hone the messages again along the lines of all politics are local how to hone the messages that, that people will actually respond to. And I think that we, you know, we were able to get that through by talking about trusted election administrators and that they're not about poly, poly, party politics, they're about democracy. And these are, the, these, are the, these are the folks that we really wanted to hold up as being the ones who are running our election. And I think people saw that firsthand.
1: Greg, that's not to say that we didn't have pre-election uh, issues. Uh, Republican uh, challenges to registrations reached something, I think there were close to 100,000, maybe maybe fewer, maybe 60,000, 70,000 uh, uh, challenges to voter registration accuracy. And very few of them turned out to uh, be valid. All that did was to give more work to local election officials who had to go back through and certify that these people were, in fact, eligible mm-hmm. uh, to vote. But that said, that's a pretty minor uh, uh, price to pay for moving forward with a, 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 a well-run election across the state.
2: Yeah, and, Paige. I mean, I'm curious because you mentioned earlier um, the, the Carter Center's work in observing the election at Fulton County in particular, which, of course, was really at the heart of a lot of uh, Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 mm-hmm. election uh, being rigged. Uh, you know, were, were Fulton County uh, officials open to this? Were they, uh, were they apprehensive or were they more um, willing to have you guys observe them because of all the fallout after 2020, all the lies and conspiracy theories that directly affected so many of their
1: workers?
0: They were very welcoming. Every place we went, and I, you know, I was thinking in my head, I went to a church. I was at a, a, a school. I was at a library. I was at a senior citizen center. So I was in precincts in all of these places, and they were very accommodating. And again, I sat with partisan poll workers in each of those places, and we had conversations about what it is they were there to see, what we were there to see. And, you know, we had our 12 page checklist to, you know, as we watch paint dry and, you know, and check these yeah, things yeah, off. Yeah. But the election administrators are very happy, just as they have been overseas. I mean, the last election I did overseas, they, they're always happy to see an election observer come in because they want to show off how effective they were. They want to show off how they do their job. And they did it well. And I think that that was really our biggest takeaway. We'll have a report out to the Fulton County board, the state election board, on December 15th about what we saw. But, you know, you didn't see any long lines. You didn't see people saying they couldn't get in to vote. And those are all good stories.
1: So, Paige, um, we're going to we promised that we'd let you go at about the halfway point in the show. Um, Let me just ask you this. How confident are you after watching the 2022 elections unfold? And we still, of course, have a runoff ahead of us. um, Given that one of the things the Carter Center has been so deeply involved in is promoting democracy around the world and here in this country, um, how confident are you that this election shows that our institutions are right now safe? Not that they're invulnerable, but that at least now they have held
0: I'm very confident. I will tell you, I did think this was an existential threat. I wasn't sure the direction it was going to go to wake up that Wednesday morning and know that, that democracy had survived in a sense that there were not a lot of uh, questions being thrown out about the process itself. was huge. And so I'm very positive, and I think it shows that our democracy is strong and the checks and balances and the pendulum will swing. But I think we're in the right direction now.
1: Greg, as a, a journalist covering the elections, um, you would you've seen the same thing? Yes.
2: Yeah. But I'll add this um, clear victories make it easier in a sense. Right. There's less.
1: Yeah. When,
2: when, when a candidate wins by six or seven points, as we saw, most of the statewide Republicans win by that margin. Um, it really reduces um, a lot of the questions about the the issues that are happening in the margin. They're very important issues, but the issues happening in the margins that could affect uh, thousands of votes. Um, or even tens of thousands of votes become a little bit less of a, I wouldn't say moot point because they're still very important, but they don't affect the outcome of an election. And so, you know, if this were a very close election, if this were, again, like 2018, an election decided by 55,000 or so votes, uh, you know, we could be talking about a very different story right now.
1: Paige, one last thing uh, before we uh, let you go. Uh, We should not uh, say goodbye to you without noting that it was just in September, that the Carter Center celebrated a very important anniversary, its partnership with Emory University, 40 years of working on a variety of projects that President Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter felt were crucial. And, and i got to say, it strikes me that you have one of the luckiest jobs in the world because you not only get to oversee projects like, um, like the election work, monitoring work you've done, you have an extraordinary uh. uh program of outreach to protect uh democracies around the world to engage uh countries in peace processes um people who listen to this show know that i'm a sucker for public health initiatives and the carter center's global health uh work has been extraordinary um i just want to congratulate you on being such a successful and important organization and say how grateful i am to the work that you and all of your colleagues at the Carter Center are doing.
0: Well, thank you very much. I inherited an amazing uh, set of colleagues who have a lot of expertise, and our relationship with Emory is very important, and it's rooted in the academic basis of all of our global health work and our peace work. And so it's uh, it's a great place to be, and I encourage people to visit it and visit principalcandidates.org if you want to sign on to the what we were talking about earlier. And, Greg, to your point, the Election Day prayer is absolutely uh, top of mind. It's, you know, election administrators say, please, please, please let them win. Let them win big. And that, that makes a big difference in <laughs> administering elections.
1: <laughs> Paige Alexander, CEO of the Carter Center, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. And by the way, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family.
0: Thank you to you too, Bill and Janice, and, and Greg, you and your family, and good luck with your run tomorrow.
1: <laughs> yeah, you. That's right. Greg run running the half marathon tomorrow. All right. Greg and I are going to continue talking after we pause for these messages. Bye-bye, Paige. Bye. <laughs> Greg Bluestein joins me uh, for the remainder of Political Rewind. Greg, just one quick note about the Carter Center. Uh, You were way too young uh, to have been engaged in this, but one of my fondest memories, I think, of all my years in Atlanta was in 1986, which is already three, four years after the Carter Center began uh, the work it was doing, uh, was the uh, uh, official opening of the Carter Center over there, um in uh off of the what we (laughs) came was the presidential parkway a very controversial project in its own right and um the opening of that center brought literally dignitaries from all over the world to celebrate what uh, jimmy and rosalind carter planned to do uh, with their center and um it it was a real honor for me back then to be part of a team that anchored the live coverage of that over at channel two news so I, we do we, we i don't think we ever say too much about how remarkable it is that we have an institution like the carter center right here in, in atlanta yes um,
2: i got in and, and look I, I one of my most remarkable experiences as a reporter was traveling to haiti in the Dominican republic with the carter center about a dozen years ago with with the former president Rosalind um and i got to see them in action um in the carter center scientists in action uh, fighting a scourge called schistosomiasis and working uh, to help um, residents of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, um, uh, and went to places I would never otherwise be able to go to with the help of the Carter Center and with uh, and with uh, you know the, the, my news outfit. They wanted me to go cover this.
1: Okay, um, let's move on and talk about. Speaking of elections, we've got another election issue uh, in terms of the runoff between Walker and Warnock. Um, Up until yesterday, midday, we thought that the issue of whether there would be early voting this Saturday had been resolved. A lower court, appeals court both said, yes, uh, Saturday voting should be allowed, should be legal. And then late yesterday, the Republican National Committee and a couple of uh, maybe the Georgia Republican Party, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm, Greg, said, no, we're going to the state Supreme Court. To argue that this Saturday election should not be allowed, even as a number of counties had already said they would have Saturday voting. And your colleague, Patricia Murphy, in a column that she uh, published, uh, said, gee, Republicans almost got off scot-free. The elections were free of any kind of uh, manipulation, interference, and yet this move by uh, these Republican organizations Makes you, it it raises questions about why are they so determined to stop Saturday voting? Yeah, even in their filing, it was filed by the state GOP, the Republican
2: National Committee, and the NRSC, so very, three very powerful groups, they called it illegal Saturday voting. And I talked to a number of Republicans who were infuriated by that in a sense. They said, look, they they wanted um, state officials, uh, state Republican officials and national officials to follow the lead of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who appealed it, lost the appeal, and then said they'll move on. Um, And basically, and this is in the words of uh, Brian Robinson, you know, I know who's a guest on this show all the time and is one of the most noted Republican strategists in the state, said Republicans should be working to use this to their advantage, not trying to fight it. You know, it's a... is a, it becomes a national story, national egg on the GOP space, but also becomes a um, a strategic defeat for Republicans as well because there are do- more than a dozen counties right now. Most of them are heavily Democratic counties, uh, but a handful of them are counties where Herschel Walker is expected to win um, and, and won in the, uh, in, in the, in the uh, November election, like Walton County, like Ware County. These are counties that – where Republicans, um, counties like this, where Republicans can amp up Saturday voting rather than trying to fight it. And just a few minutes ago, we had the Democratic response to that emergency appeal by Republicans. And essentially, it says the county's plans are squarely in compliance with Georgia law, and it's not creating chaos. It's not creating the fallout that the Republicans are saying it's creating.
1: So, Greg, uh, to, to what extent do we think that Republicans are, are reinforcing here is the uh, notion that it is Democratic voters who turn out to vote early, and therefore they'd kind of like to shut down one extra day of voting. That's an awfully uh, uh, transparent, it seems to me, uh, uh, statement about their concerns.
2: Yeah, they're making the case with a little twist. They're saying basically that Democratic voters... Who rely on the Saturday voting, but it's the, the counties that are putting those those plans into effect are the Democratic uh, leaning counties, like the cab, like the bigger, wealthier counties that can, in the Republicans' view, afford um, this. And um, you know, and again, there are many Republicans here in Georgia who say we should encourage Republicans should encourage <laughs> Republican leaning counties, the rural counties, whatever, to take these uh, these similar steps. I asked Senator Warnock about this after a campaign stop. Um, on Tuesday in Fayetteville, and he said this is not a victory for either party. This is not about partisan politics. This is about a victory for Georgians because so many Georgians rely on weekend voting. They're they're shift workers. They have other complications. They have family issues. you You name it, it's hard to vote even with a week of early voting. During the weekdays, it's hard to vote on a weekday for many people, and Saturday voting gives them just another outlet to vote.
1: So, do do you agree that it it really in the long run uh, is simply a non par I mean, it was Warnock who brought s- the suit to challenge no Saturday voting. But you would agree that it essentially should be a non partisan issue that it just gives more people more time to vote. I
2: would hope so. I would hope that it can be looked at through a through an apolitical lens because it's just adding another day of voting throughout, ideally throughout the entire state of Georgia. Although the issue now is whether some of these smaller counties can get poll workers and get processes in place, um, yeah. th- you know, this late in the ballgame.
1: Okay. Um, thank you for that. Uh, you were out on the trail with Raphael Warnock uh, yesterday. Uh, just give us a sense of what, what's it like to be with him right now? What's he saying? What's his primary message? Um, how does he appear to be handling the added pressure of a four-week runoff period? Talk to us about him.
2: You know, he joked that um, – yesterday he joked that that was the first time he realized, because one of the staffers told him this, that he's asking voters for the fifth time in two years to come out and vote for him. When you count the special, the runoff, the primary, the general, and now the runoff in 2022. Um, so he understands and he his messaging sort of reflects that, hey, voters here are exhausted by all this. And, Bill, he's trying to do this very unique two-step right now because usually in runoffs – you hear candidates appeal primarily to the base, get the lowest hanging fruit, most likely supporters out again. It's not about persuading middle-of-the-road voters to come back out. There's not enough time for that. Um, But in this case, it's a little different because, of course, he's trying to appeal to that that base, and that was what a lot of his messaging was around just yesterday in VanVille. But he's also still trying to get those split-ticket voters out because 200,000 or so of them who voted for Governor Kemp and did not vote for Herschel Walker – the, that is a make or break. That is a that could be a decisive difference maker in this um, in, in this runoff period. And so a lot of his messaging continued the same messaging before the midterm, which is he works with Ted Cruz, he works with Marco Rubio, he works with Tommy Tuberville, he works with a lot of these arch conservatives. What he's trying to do is give basically give those moderate middle of the road swing voters safe harbor. You know, he's not talking about Joe Biden, just like he didn't talk about Joe Biden in the run-up to the midterm. He's trying to to make himself, um, you know, basically a safe bet for Republicans who are squeamish about Herschel Walker. And we'll see if it works. It's so hard to predict what the runoff electorate will look like if it will do anything remotely resembling the midterm electorate composition.
1: So um, with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, poll conducted for AARP. and I think it's important to note, by two bipartisan polling firms, uh, a Democratic and a Republican uh, polling firm, uh, it it, uh, found that the race is within the margin of error. Uh, Warnock, 51, Walker, 47, but there's a a 4-plus point uh, margin of error there, so it is essentially tied. Uh, But I'm interested in a few of the the, uh, crosstabs in this poll, uh, Greg. Uh, and that is that um, Herschel Walker has a pretty commanding lead uh, uh, with voters uh, uh, over 50 years old, while uh, it's actually nine points, while Warnock has a large lead among voters 18 to 49. So the over 50 people are more likely to turn out typically than the 18 to 49 year olds, yeah?
2: Exactly, and that's really why the pollsters say this this election is up in the air, because we know from Georgia voting history that older voters tend to vote disproportionately higher in runoff elections, which are generally lower turnout than 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 other uh, blocks of voters. At the same time, the same poll showed that among voters 50 over, um, about 90 percent of them were extremely motivated to vote, and mm-hmm. so the, that means they're, they're we we can assume they're very likely to vote. Whereas among the younger voters, they're still high, but only about three-quarters of them were extremely motivated to vote. And so, yes, Senator Warnock has a, has a big advantage with these younger voters, but for, if you're in Herschel Walker's camp, you're excited about the fact that he has a, an edge with older voters, but also they're much far likelier to be motivated to show up on December 6th or, or the week before to, to cast their ballots.
1: And it's important for us to point out, in terms of turnout, that uh, whereas Democrats uh, in 2018, largely thanks to Stacey Abrams and her organization's work uh, to motivate, to, to really uh, uh, motivate voters to turn out for Democrats to identify uh, voters was a successful effort. Um, now the Republicans have caught up on that. Brian Kemp has lent his get out the vote machinery to the Walker campaign. They were very successful in doing that in the general election, um, and uh, so that is of some concern to Democrats as they watch the uh, fr- runoff unfold.
2: Exactly. Um, Brian Kemp has spent basically $10 million plus building his own get out the vote operation because he felt like he couldn't rely on outside groups, and including the state Republican Party of Georgia, uh, to do so for him. And now he's directed that uh, get out the vote apparatus to go help Herschel Walker, to help, help a pro-Walker group, um, you're you're seeing hundreds, we mentioned it earlier, but hundreds of grassroots workers, staffers coming down here. Um, Warnock's campaign alone boasts 900 paid staffers working on the ground, knocking on doors, canvassing. Uh, Republicans have hundreds as well. There are probably thousands. Well, there's tens of thousands of volunteers, but there's probably thousands of others coming from other outside groups and outside the state. So we're talking about basically an army of grassroots operatives working to remind voters, because so many, we know it, you know, your listeners know it, so many folks aren't paying attention. They're not tuned in. Uh, There there are folks in in my network of friends who don't even know there's a runoff going on in a few weeks, despite the $300, $300 million worth of ads being spent. So there's a really sophisticated effort going on uh, to target voters, especially those who have voted in other primaries and runoffs that are likely to vote again to make sure they go out to the polls.
1: All right, I want to keep talking uh, with Greg Bluestein uh, about election news, but it's time to get our second break of the show out of the way. Let's do that, and we'll be back with more. Just a reminder, it is newsletter day for Political Rewind. Uh, If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do it easily. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters, uh, plural. And uh, by the way, I do want to say that in what I've written for this week's newsletter, I did not want to talk about politics. It's Thanksgiving week, for goodness sake. And so instead, I hope you'll come and see uh, the story I've written, and more important, the video uh, of the of Uncle Gus, the dog who brings incredible joy <laughs> into my life and Janice's life. Uh, it's just the sort of thing I wanted to do right before Thanksgiving. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, Greg Bluestein, enough of that. Um, let's talk about Herschel Walker. Uh, The Washington Post uh, this morning, I don't know, maybe you guys have posted it on the AJC website, I haven't seen it yet, but um, the Washington Post put up a story that that second woman who had accused um, Herschel Walker of uh, pushing her into having an abortion, who said she had a years-long affair with him, she came forward toward the end of the general election cycle. She came out again yesterday, this time, sitting in person with her attorney, Gloria Allred. She'd been on a Zoom the first time and once again said, I am hurt, I'm angry that Herschel Walker refuses to ac- uh, acknowledge that we had a years-long relationship. She uh, said, are you really willing to do anything, including lying to the voters in Georgia to become senator, she said. That's a quote. And then she went on and said, do you have the guts to meet with me in person in public, look me in the eye and tell me to my face that you don't know me and that none of what I just said is true. I look forward to your response. Um, Greg, uh, this woman may have serious personal grievances and be deeply hurt by this. But at this stage in the race, um, it, it's hard not to look at this and understand the impact uh, you've got to think Gloria Allred and this woman think it will have on, on the election itself.
2: Yeah, it comes at a pivotal time in the election, and this was a, a, a Zoom press conference held in, in Los Angeles on Tuesday. And it's the third time we've heard from this Jane Doe, this, this woman who's, whose face is clear at this point. The first interview, she was her face was uh, held in, in anonymity, but then she did an interview with Good Morning America. Now um, she did this, where her face is clearly seen to the public. Um, and this is the third time where she's spoken publicly about um, – about Herschel Walker and, and her accusation that he pressured her to have an abortion um, years ago, decades ago. Uh, and this, of course, she became the second woman to make those allegations. Uh, one, one of his uh, – the mother of one of his children also has made that accusation that, that he uh, initially paid for her abortion, her first abortion, and then pressured her to have an abortion that she refused to have later on. So these, these all go into the same argument that Senator Warnock and his allies have made throughout, which is that um, Herschel Walker is unfit for office and that this exposes hypocrisy when it comes to the issue of abortion because, of course, Herschel Walker has been out there advocating for a total ban on the procedure. He calls these accusations a flat-out lie and promised to file a defamation lawsuit against the first accuser um, months ago. We still have not seen that defamation lawsuit. Um, We also know that on the campaign trail, um, you know, it is not coming up. This is not something that Herschel Walker is obviously bringing up. But frankly, it's not something that that Raphael Warnock is bringing up eagerly either. He'd rather focus on other elements of Herschel Walker's uh, background, including Frankly, recently statements from Herschel Walker about vampires and werewolves on the campaign trail. Uh, Senator Warnock basically opened one of his campaign stump speeches with that, saying this guy isn't fit for office, and that that's something he's using um, as as that sort of example in his view.
1: Greg, to what extent? I mean, that was certainly uh, uh, the uh, the main thrust of much of the Warnock campaign in the final. Uh, Closing days of the general election race, and uh, the impact—hard to it's hard to know what the impact was—but it didn't take Walker out of the game.
2: No, it didn't. We didn't see his poll numbers plummet either. We saw them relatively stay around the same kind of mid forties to high forties level, which is where he ended up. Um, so we're not sure what sort of impact this has cumulatively. You know, individually, if someone had made that sort of accusation against someone like Governor Kemp or another Republican who didn't have all that baggage coming into the race, it might have had a huge impact. But I heard even basically from Democrats saying that there's already this mound of personal baggage that that Herschel Walker faced. So this was just another piece of it. Um, and clearly we're seeing a very different strategy from Senator Warnock than we saw in 2020 when he wasn't really focusing on his opponents nearly as much as he was focusing on his own agenda. In this case, he is, of course, talking about his policies, his votes in the U.S. Senate, uh, his support for bipartisanship, but he's also very eager to lace into uh, Herschel Walker and say, basically, this is a serious job, and it needs a serious person uh, to be your next U.S. Senate. Uh,
1: The Jolt had another interesting item today that relates to the Walker campaign. Uh, Raphael Warnock went to Wrightsville. Herschel Walker's hometown, where he is a great, great hero, and held a campaign event in what you would think of as enemy territory in some ways. But one of the people at the rally was um, a man who uh, was a former football coach of Herschel Walker's who basically said to the Warnock crowd, this is a guy you should not elect uh, to the United States Senate. The Walker campaign uh, jumped all over that. They sort of got off-message to uh, try to uh, characterize him as a liar who wasn't really a coach of Herschel's in high school. And uh, the, it, the way, and then you may very well have written this item, the, the way that, that it was described in the jolt was that why is the Walker campaign letting them distract them from their major messages uh, at, at this point in the race?
2: Yeah, it was. <laughs> I got a lot of Republicans texting me and calling me saying, what are they doing <laughs> What's going on in there? You know they've been trying to drive this message home about uh, the Senator Warnock's uh, an apartment complex uh, apartment building linked to Senator Warnock for now weeks, and it's been basically a core part of their, their their closing message. And to see a pivot like that with the entire full force of the campaign basically questioning whether this this, this coach who was his coach he was a to, the yearbook and other coaches will clearly say that that Curtis Dixon was a coach on the Johnson County uh, high school football team. So he was one of Herschel Walker's coaches. And for, for members of, of, of Herschel Walker's campaign staff to go after this, this former coach and even alleged that he wasn't a coach, and one of his campaign operators actually deleted a tweet that said that. It was just a bizarre turn, and it caused a, a rift in, among the GOP here.
1: In a in a race that's already got so many bizarre twists and turns, yes. Um, Greg, we're we're out of time for today's political rewind. Uh, we are going to take uh, Thursday, tomorrow, and Friday off. Our team deserves a break, uh, and come back with you uh, on Monday for another uh, show. Um, but, Greg, in the meantime, I wish you and your wife and your daughters a wonderful Thanksgiving. Have fun running the half marathon tomorrow. And again, I'm so happy that you've been a part of this show for as long as you have. Thank you, Greg.
2: Thank you, Bill. Right back at you for a restful Thanksgiving holiday. You and your listeners. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Also, I really want to say how grateful I am for our team. Victoria Evans Cash and Jay Cook, who engineer this show. Our producer, Chase McGee, private eye. Natalie Mendenhall, senior producer, extraordinaire. I've Always, always enjoy the chance I get to work with you day in and day out. So I wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving as well. And to our listeners, you've been with us for a long time, many of you, and you make my uh, life so much richer uh, to know that you care about what we do on this program. So to all of you, a happy Thanksgiving as well. That's it. We're back on Monday. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. See you next week. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and have a great day tomorrow. Bye-bye.